This is Gordon Vernick with Jazz Insights. Today, we are going to listen to Louis Armstrong's first recordings. These were made in 1923 when he was living in Chicago, playing with his mentor, Joe King Oliver. In, I believe, late 1922, early 1923, King Oliver sent a telegram to young Louis Armstrong, who at this time was about 21 years old, and invited him to come up to Chicago. Um, there were a lot of playing opportunities, and most of the important musicians from New Orleans had already left by this time. King Oliver had a very popular band. He was performing at a place called the Lincoln Gardens, and Oliver wanted to add a second cornet. I became interested in these recordings when I purchased an old 1915 cornet a few weeks ago, and it got me to thinking about these first recordings and King Oliver in particular. This first track we're going to listen to is a very famous one. It's called Dipper Mouth Blues, which was also Louis Armstrong's nickname. We're going to slide in at about a minute into the recording. We're going to listen to King Oliver's trumpet solo. King Oliver had a very light sound. He didn't play particularly loud, but he played with a lot of finesse, and he was a master of using the plunger and played with an older-style rhythm, more like a ragtime rhythm. Didn't have the elasticity of Louis Armstrong, but check out... King Oliver's solo on this, and as he winds up his solo, there will be a wonderful ensemble with Lewis playing the lead. That great exclamation, oh, play that thing, was made by the bassist and banjo player Bill Johnson, who was a legendary um, New Orleans bassist um, who was part of the original Creole jazz band and played with King Oliver in Chicago at this time. King Oliver's band was great. It featured Honoré Dutre on um, trombone, Johnny St. Cyr on banjo and guitar, Johnny Dodds on clarinet, um, sometimes Stump Evans. You can hear him playing C melody saxophone, if you listen really carefully, on a few tracks. And Lillian Hardin, who would later become Mrs. Louis Armstrong, um, was playing piano in the group. Oliver's playing is very nice. It's very delicate, and it goes back to like a 19th century um, cornet style. The players had great technique, played more squarely on the beat, uh, used a very fast vibrato. He doesn't swing like Lewis. Lewis could play in between the beats, behind the beats, over the bar lines with this great elasticity of rhythm. Another aside is that this is collective improvisation. This is right at the point where um, soloists began to step out of collective improvisation. Lewis was so strong and so inventive and creative, there was no way he could really be confined to collective improvisation. He's going to play a very short solo on this wonderful recording of Froggy Moore from 1923.
you know, on these old recordings, um, they rarely used a drum set, although they had a drummer in the band. The drummer usually plays woodblock. Uh, the bass player, Bill Johnson, sometimes didn't play on the tracks at all or would play uh, banjo because they just didn't have the technology. These are old acoustic recordings. On that particular recording of Froggy Moore, um, Louis Armstrong is exhibiting all the characteristics that he would become later famous for in the mid to late 1920s with the Hot 5 and Hot 7 records. The great rhythm, the big fat sound, the wonderful articulation, and of course that rhythmic concept that was so different from all of his contemporaries. He's really defining a new way to play American music, and he did it through these wonderful solos. They're actually not solos in a modern context. It's just that his playing was so strong in terms of the collective improvisation. All you really focus on is his playing, which was different from traditional New Orleans-style collective improvisation, where no one is supposed to really step out in front of the group. But he does it with such great finesse, and it's got such a wonderful attitude that you just can't help but you know go along with his music for a wonderful musical ride. The next piece we're going to listen to is from the same period. It's called the Snake Rag. One of the things that the Oliver group was famous for were these two cornet breaks where the band would stop and Lewis and King would play these little short solos, like little duets. The group was famous for these. Sometimes they, they figured them out beforehand. Sometimes they would improvise them. But it was such a unique aspect of the group. Also, that the fact they had two cornets. Most of these groups from this period would have maybe one cornet, later one trumpet, a clarinet, and trombone. But let's check out Snake Rag. There are no solos per se, but just the stop time duets that they play, and the collective improvisation is just marvelous. That recording of Snake Rag is one of the finest recordings of New Orleans collective improvisation. One of the things that's really interesting is that these recordings were made, I believe, at the Jeanette Studios in Richmond, Indiana. Oliver had left uh, New Orleans somewhere about 1918, so he had been in Chicago for a number of years. And in all probability, the style had changed or was beginning to evolve over that's five years. That's a pretty long period to be away from New Orleans. Is this a good representation of what New Orleans music sounded like um, at the turn of the century up to about 1915? We, we really don't know because we don't have any recordings. But what I will tell you is that Snake Rag is one of the swingingest pieces I have ever heard, even by modern standards. The collective improvisation is pristine. It, it is it's textbook. None of the players are interfering with each other. It's a perfect balance. Honoré Dutre's tailgate trombone playing is magnificent. He's someone who's been really been overlooked. And at one point, if you listen really carefully, you can hear him play but these kind of J.J. Johnson-esque um, eighth notes. That it, I had to listen to this piece many times because it's a you know it's an old acoustic recording. And I heard this trombone. I was like, man, that sounds so modern. 
and the balance is just great. And, you know, and later on when you get to the Hot Five recordings, when say Johnny Dodds gets to separate himself from the group and play um, solos, and you realize that he's not a great soloist. His, his real forte is collective improvisation, which he does beautifully, and he can solo. But when you get to the Hot Five and Hot Sevens in 1927, which is just a few years later, you really get the full essence of how far ahead Louis Armstrong was of his colleagues. In 1923, in Chicago, the Oliver Group recorded oh, somewhere between 60 and 70 10-inch 78 RPM records. Unfortunately, from what I understand, about 20 or 30 of them have been destroyed or they're, they can't find them. So there could be some wonderful recordings out there that you know we'll never hear unless they're discovered in an attic somewhere. So that, that's kind of a, one of those musical tragedies, but also a kind of a musical mystery because you know maybe sometime in the future those recordings might surface. But it's, it's kind of um, sad right now that we don't have those recordings. Next track we're going to listen to is from the same period, 1923, Chattanooga Stomp. There are no solos per se, but about one minute and 40 seconds into the track, you can hear Lewis really pushing the group, and his sound is so strong as the legend is that he, you know, these are acoustic recordings that the record producer and engineer would say, Lewis, you need to stand back about 10 feet because your sound is overpowering the whole group but you can hear him really pushing even though he's the second cornet player you know oliver's the boss oliver was his mentor but you know lewis is um he can't be contained in, in this context and you can hear him really pushing the group so let's listen to some great collective improvisation that really swings circa 1923 1923 was a very busy year for young Louis Armstrong. He met his second wife-to-be, Lillian Hardin. He became the toast of Chicago as a cornet player who had incredible um, musical imagination. He played the horn like nobody's business. I mean, he could play high, low, with this big, fat sound, a new kind of rhythm, and he was a great singer. I don't have any recordings of him singing from this early, early period. You know, we have to wait till about 1925 or 26 to hear him sing, but I'm sure that he, he might have been singing at that time. His wife, Lillian, was um, a rather aggressive business person, and there was an opportunity in early 1924 for Lewis to leave King Oliver and go to New York and perform with the very famous Fletcher Henderson Orchestra, in which he did. He left uh, Chicago for about a year or so and performed with Fletcher Henderson, make some great recordings there with Clarence Williams and Bessie Smith and a whole host of other wonderful musicians. Jazz and American music would never be the same after his trip to New York. We're going to close out today's session with uh, one of my favorite tracks from the 1923 recordings with King Oliver. And this is a short excerpt. This is called Riverside Blues, one of the few times where Lewis can really be heard playing
flying all by himself. And this is at the end of the track. Hope you enjoyed these wonderful, wonderful recordings. For a long time, I, I always dismissed these, and I, I never really paid much attention to them until I started to study them and realize how intricate they are and how well-balanced and what wonderful musicianship there is on these recordings. These were all consummate musicians that played an older style. It is so good, and it still swings by today's standards. This has been Jazz Insights with Dr. Gordon Vernick. Visit me on the web at gordonvernick.com. Jazz Insights is produced by WMLB AM 1690, the voice of the arts in Atlanta, Georgia.